Alright, welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. I'm your host, Luke Prague. Today I'll be speaking with Robert Russell, a PhD physicist and ordained minister and theologian who founded the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences. He's going to explain how new discoveries in physics may inform our understanding of who God is. But first, I'd like to introduce you to the new show. I was originally going to call it Above Us Only Sky, but this show really isn't meant to be just an atheist mouthpiece. I want it to be a forum for interfaith discussion and understanding. I'll be interviewing Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Pagans, Deists, Jains, Atheists, and people of other worldviews. So I think Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot is a more appropriate title. We'll be talking about the biggest questions there are, but we have to remember we are tiny humans on a tiny rock in a vast, cold universe. And we only just discovered that very fact. Also, I like the thought that when I'm in the heat of a debate with someone, it can seem like we're opposite human beings. But when you zoom out to Pluto, you realize we're pretty much all the same. We all search for the truth. We all get misled by biases and emotions. We all feel confident that we're closer to the truth than most people are. We all take intellectual shortcuts. We all make claims before checking them out. We're all ignorant of nearly every religion and worldview out there. We all spend most of our time not on truth or introspection, but on mundane things. Sleeping, eating, showering, working, relaxing, coming and going. And we could all benefit from understanding the human beings that are sleeping, eating, showering, working, relaxing, coming and going right next to us. And that's what this podcast is about. I want this show to be as timeless as possible, so I won't spend any time on announcements or religious news. The interviews, too, will focus on timeless topics instead of current events. I also want this podcast to be interactive, so I've set up a voicemail where you can call and ask me questions about atheism. For each show, I'll pick a few of the best questions and answer them briefly right after the interview. For instructions on how to submit your question, visit commonsenseatheism.com and click Ask the Atheist at the top of the page. For this first podcast, I also want to share my personal story, just so you know where I'm coming from and you know what my biases are. You can also read the story on my website. I grew up in Cambridge, Minnesota, a town of 5,000 people and 22 Christian churches at the time. My father was, and still is, pastor of a small, non-denominational church. My mother volunteered to support overseas missionaries around the world. I went to church, Bible study, and other church functions every week. I prayed often and earnestly. For 12 years, I attended a Christian school that taught Bible classes and creation science. I played in worship bands and maintained the church's technology. As a teenager, I made trips to China and England to tell the atheists over there about Jesus. I felt the presence of God. Sometimes I would tingle and sweat with the Holy Spirit. Other times I felt led by him to give money to a certain cause, or to pay someone a specific compliment, or to walk to the cross at the front of my church and bow before it during a worship service. At age 19, I got depressed. 
probably because I did nothing but work at Walmart, download music, and watch internet porn. But one day, I saw a leaf twirling in the wind, and it was so beautiful, like the twirling plastic bag in the movie American Beauty. I had an epiphany. I realized that everything in nature was a gift from God to me. Grass, lakes, trees, sunsets, all these were gifts of beauty from my Savior to me. I thought of this every time I saw something beautiful, and God lifted me out of my depression. I read Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, a manual for how to fall in love with God so that following his ways is not a burden, but a natural and painless product of loving God. My dad and I read lots of this Christian self-help stuff. We shared our latest discoveries with each other and debated theology. I moved to Minneapolis for college and was attracted to a Christian group led by Mark Van Steenwick. Mark's small group of well-educated Jesus followers were postmodern missional Christians. They thought that loving and serving others in the way of Jesus was more important than doctrinal truth. That really resonated with me, and we lived it out with the poor immigrants of Minneapolis. By this time, I had little interest in church structure or petty doctrinal disputes. I just wanted to be like Jesus. So I decided I should try to find out who Jesus actually was. I began to study the historical Jesus. What I learned, even when reading Christian scholars, shocked me. The Gospels were written decades after Jesus' death by non-eyewitnesses. They are riddled with contradictions, legends, and known lies. Jesus and Paul disagreed on many core issues. And how could I accept the miracle claims about Jesus when I outright rejected other ancient miracle claims as superstitious nonsense? These revelations scared me. It was not what I had wanted to learn. But now I had to know the truth. I studied the historical Jesus, the history of Christianity, the Bible, theology, and the philosophy of religion. Almost everything I read even the books written by conservative Christians gave me more reason to doubt, not less. I started to panic. I felt like my best friend, my source of purpose and happiness and comfort, was dying. And worse, I was killing him. If only I could have faith. If only I could unlearn all these things and just believe I cried out with the words from Mark 9.24, Lord, help my unbelief. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't force myself to believe what I knew wasn't true. On January 11th, 2008, I whispered to myself, There is no God. The next day, I emailed my buddy Mark, Quote, I didn't want to bother you, but I'm lost and despairing, and I could really use your help if you can give it. I made a historical study of Jesus, which led me to a study of the Bible, historical and philosophical arguments for and against God, atheist arguments, etc. It has destroyed my faith. I think there is almost certainly not a God. I'm fucking miserable. I told my parents, and they sobbed for 30 minutes. 
can you help me? Unquote. As always, Mark responded with love and honesty, but he didn't give me any reasons to believe. He said he believed mostly for the aesthetics of belief and his somewhat mystical experiences of Christ. He wrote, In a way, I am a Christian because I want to be one, and the logic flows from there. I also wrote a defiant email to an atheist radio show host to whom I'd been listening, Matt Dillahunty. Quote, I was coming from a lifetime high of surrendering my life to Jesus, releasing myself from all cares and worries, and filling myself and others with love. Then I began an investigation of the historical Jesus, and since then I've been absolutely miserable. I do not think I am strong enough to be an atheist, or brave enough. I have a broken leg, and my life is much better with a crutch. I'm going to seek genuine experience with God, to commune with God, and to reinforce my faith. I am going to avoid solid atheist arguments, because they are too compelling and cause for despair. I do not want to live in an empty, cold, ultimately purposeless universe in which I am worthless and inherently alone. I hope that I find a real, true God in my journey of blind faith. I do not need to convince you of that God, since you seem satisfied as an atheist, but I need to convince myself of that God. Unquote. Matt responded to my every sentence with care, understanding, and reason, but I still tried to hang on to my faith. For a while I read nothing but Christian authors. Even the smartest ones just made lots of noise about the mystery of God. They used big words so it sounded like they were saying something precise and convincing. My dad told me I had been led astray because I was arrogant to think that I could get to truth by studying. Humbled and encouraged, I started a new quest to find God. I wrote on my blog, quote, I've been humbled. I was doing discipleship in my own strength because I thought I was smart enough and disciplined enough. Now, having surrendered my prideful and independent ways to him, I can see how my weakness is God's strength. I've repented. I was deceived because I did not let the Spirit lead me into truth. Now I ask for God's guidance in all quests for knowledge and wisdom. I feel like I've been born again, again. Unquote. It didn't last. Every time I reached out for some reason, any reason to believe, God simply wasn't there. I tried to believe despite the evidence, but I couldn't believe a lie. Not anymore. No matter how much I missed him, I couldn't bring Jesus back to life. I don't recall how it happened, but eventually I found out that I could be more happy and moral without God than I ever was with him. I came out as an atheist to my family, friends, and church. They were surprised, but they still loved me. They were much more concerned when two elders of my church decided they were Catholic. I bonded with them briefly because the three of us were suddenly outcasts. I had stubbornly resisted my deconversion, but these days I am excited to accept reality, no matter what it is. I remember when I finally realized the problems inherent to my precious libertarianism. I was not dismayed or resistant. I was thrilled. 
This comfort with the truth unleashed my curiosity about Christianity and religion in full force. In my studies I uncovered lots of false facts and dishonest arguments from Christians and atheists. Each discovery only deepened my hunger for knowledge, but also my realization that humans know very little, and with little certainty. Looking back, I feel lucky that I left God for purely rational reasons instead of emotional ones. Indeed, all my emotions were pushing the other way. But that's probably not the norm. I bet most atheists today have lost their faith for irrational, emotional reasons, or else they were raised as atheists. When I went to the premiere of Bill Maher's Religious, one of the few blatantly atheist films released in America, almost the entire crowd was gay. I remember thinking they were probably atheists because the church rejected them, not because they knew the logical fallacies of the Kalam cosmological argument. In many ways, I regret my Christian upbringing. So much time and energy wasted on an invisible friend. So many bad lessons about morality, thinking, and sex. So much needless guilt. But mostly, I'm glad this is my story. Now I know what it's like to be a true believer. I know what it's like to fall in love with God and serve Him with all my heart. I know what it's like to experience His presence. I know what it's like to isolate one part of my life from reason or evidence. And I know what it's like to think that is a virtue. I know what it's like to earnestly seek the truth, but still be totally deluded. I know what it's like to think that what I believe, or what my loving pastor says, or what my ancient book says, is more true than what reason and evidence say. I know what it's like to think faith is a strength, not a gullible weakness. I know what it's like to be confused by the trinity, the failure of prayers, or biblical contradictions, but to genuinely embrace them as the mystery of God. I know what it's like to believe God is so far beyond human reason that we can't understand him, but at the same time to fiercely believe that I know the details of how he wants us to behave. That was my experience for 22 years, and I am grateful for it. Now I can approach believers with true understanding. Well, that's my story. Now you know where I'm coming from. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Robert Russell. Dr. Robert Russell has a Ph.D. in experimental physics from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is now the in-residence professor of theology and science at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. He is the founder and director of the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences, a long-term judge for the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion, a member of the Society for Ordained Scientists, and a co-editor of the academic journal theology and science. He is the author of Cosmology from Alpha to Omega, has edited several books on religion and the natural sciences, and clearly has the advantage of living 36-hour days. Welcome <laughs> to the show, Bob. It's great to have you. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, first, would you mind sharing your faith journey with us? Were you always a Christian, and how did your scientific studies affect your faith? Well, it's a great question, and to take a long story short, um, I've always been a Christian in a certain sense, but I've certainly really struggled with it profoundly. I think, you know, and, and partly why I do theology and science is to continue to, to probe that intersection in my life and, and see its strengths and weaknesses. Um, I was raised uh, in the Episcopal Church, went to Stanford as a major physics, religion, and music, 
uh, I think that's where I really began to uh, find the challenge of the science, the whole worldview of Christianity. And went off to seminary, uh, then I did a PhD in physics, and uh, in the process I continued to, to um, you know, try to explore how science both illuminates and, and you know, really challenges uh, Christian faith, I think, world religions as a whole. Um, and then, you know, basically went from there to saying theologians in the 20th century hadn't really dealt either at all, or at least sufficiently with science. And so, you know, I decided that's my call. I needed to try to sort it out for myself, so I began teaching at the GT, as you said, and uh, doing research, getting the center going. The process really being that in the context of teaching theology, you know, the challenges are raised so much and the questions from the students and the things we're reading that it becomes a research project as well. So research and teaching, for me, really, really go together. And I can continue to, you know, find more and more insights about my faith and the tradition through science, but also continue to find some huge and challenging questions. Many of them come from the philosophy of science and how you interpret science. Many of them come from the discoveries of science, and that even that mixture is, is sort of complicated. So, yes, I, I certainly am Christian. At the same time, I think to be a Christian, as Paul Tillich would say, is to be able to wrestle with your doubt and see faith as very dynamic and not, not just something that's sort of written, you know, once and for all. Now, most atheists and many believers also tend to think of religion and science as always being in conflict, whether it's over heliocentrism or evolution or stem cell research. Is that a picture of the relationship that you have? Well, the conflict model is really more of a myth. I mean, a lot of historians of science, like John Brooke, have, have demythologized that the relations between theology and science or science and religion is, is actually much more complex than each one. It depends a lot on, on the particular topic. I mean, broadly speaking, I think there's, there's areas of conflict. If you read scripture literally, there are lots of areas of conflict. If you, if you um, read science literally and say it's only rough truth, there are areas of conflict, the whole thing is in conflict. But if you, you know, look at the text in religion and you look at the text, you like of the theories of science as partial and truth-bearing, but not literal, then get a more nuanced layer. Evolution is a good example. You know, if you say because evolution doesn't refer to God, therefore there's no God, well, of course it's a conflict, but that's really a philosophical interpretation of evolution. It says that a scientific theory has referred to everything that's real, and that needs to be the case. So, the evolution, per se, isn't in conflict with science, but certainly it raises challenges. Um, how, do, how do I understand uh, the origin of human sin in a natural world, and how to understand the suffering of nature given a loving God? And so it raises huge questions, but those are questions in the conversation versus the kind of conversation stoppers that says, you know, science is the only rough truth, therefore there's no God. Mm-hmm. Now, in your work, you've suggested that recent scientific discoveries like relativity, Big Bang cosmology, chaos theory, complexity theory, the quantum mechanics, uh, might actually open new doors for theology to jump back into the discussion with serious philosophy after a brief hiatus of um, logical empiricism or logical positivism. So whenever I hear something like that, I'm a bit wary because I feel like I might be talking to somebody like Deepak Chopra, who uses the public confusion about quantum theory to make it say whatever he wants it to say. Um, for example, the quantum mechanics allows us to perform psychic healing or something like that, whether we're all part of a universal mind or whatever. But um, you actually have a PhD in physics, so I'm a little bit optimistic that um, you have something more substantive to well, say you. than Deepak Chopra. So uh, how do you see the recent scientific theories giving some credence to theology and the existence of God or informing us about them? Well, I want to set aside but I do agree with you, and I've, I've been saying this in publications for 30 years, that 
quantum mechanics can be serialized and, you know, used to justify almost anything. And I once renamed a book that you'll recognize, The Wow of Physics, because I don't, I don't want the excitement of quantum mechanics or the sort of counterintuitive sense of quantum mechanics to therefore give you, you know, free reign to whatever. Probably the worst example of that is the movie, movie What's the Bleach? That sort of says you can make your world the way you want it to be. So we need to step aside from any of that and see what's left. And the way I do that, at least, is to work with really good philosophers of science, you know, like Ernest McMullen or uh, Jim Cushing, or people who really have spent their philosophical career looking at quantum mechanics and debating its interpretations. And then say, well, of course I believe God acts, but is there any connection between that belief and what quantum mechanics or chaos theory is saying about the world? And so I'd have a conversation around its philosophical interpretation. And, you know, putting a framework and saying, this interpretation may be wrong. I think if you, if you look at what I've read, I've written, I've always said, I'll take um, that particular version of the Copenhagen interpretation, which Heisenberg defended, which is that quantum mechanics indicates that there are some events like the radioactive decay for which there's no sufficient, efficient natural cause. Now, that interpretation could be wrong. Dave Bohm had an explanation that did give you a sufficient natural cause as a quantum potential. So if Bohm's interpretation were to prove the very best one, and sort of win over the philosophers of science, then my use of quantum mechanics would be wrong, because it, it doesn't point to determinism. So having said that, then I can say, well, if it's correct, what does it say? If this interpretation of the determinism is, is true, so it's a what-if argument, then what would it say about divine action? Now, it is true, I believe, that God acts, but it, I don't want to use quantum mechanics to justify that by not being careful with it. Having said that, I think it is true that if you believe God acts in the world, you can give an account of that action, which doesn't mean God acts by intervening, by, by breaking the laws of nature. Yeah, so you've said that quantum mechanics can give us a way to, or can give God a way to interact in the world without breaking the laws of physics. First of all, though, why would we want such a theory? Uh, that doesn't seem to fit with what most Christians have believed in history anyway, so why would we want such a theory? Well, I'm not sure that's correct. I mean, I'm not ruling out miracles. God certainly can act in history and nature in miraculous ways if God wants to, and I believe there's evidence that God has. But the real question is over the long scope of history, say, you know, three plus billion years of life, evolution on Earth, can you, can a person like myself, who does believe God creates life, say that the process of evolution all the way God does it? Can you really mean that? And I think that you can. I mean, you're right in that most Christians you know, over the millennia have wanted to talk about both God acting in general and God acting in specific miraculous ways. I'm trying to say God acting in general doesn't mean just for the theological language about what science already talks about, that God really does work in nature, but without raising laws of nature, which would be miraculous. So it's a, it's a third category, if you like. And it would have been natural for people like Augustine or even Aquinas to think this way, but because of the rise of science, in the 16th, 17th century and mechanistic philosophy in the 18th century, it appeared as if nature was closed to that kind of action. We only could have God acting miraculously. And I'm trying to reopen that conversation by saying, well, science has changed and the philosophy of science has changed. So does that open up the kind of uh, conceptual way, uh, the conceptuality of divine action that is really quite consistent with um, the tradition of theology? Yeah, so let's get right into it. What is your theory of how God might act in the world by way of quantum mechanics? I don't think anybody would claim to have a theory of how God acts, because the basic sort of affirmation that Christian Jews and Muslims 
make about God is that God is mysterious, holy, holy, mysterious, or transcendent, or other. God isn't a person like you and me. So, even if I had a theory of how I act in the world, if I, you know, if, I, if you could solve a neuroscience problem and tell me how, how mental decisions are affected in the body, if you could, even if you could solve that problem, you still wouldn't have a theory of how God acts because God doesn't act like a person in the world. So it's not a theory about that. It's simply saying, if I really do believe that God is active in or making a difference in both history and nature and people, quantum mechanics says that you can conceive of that at one level of nature, namely the, the subatomic level, where it doesn't entail God becoming another natural agent. God doesn't become a cause, because there's no cause for quantum processes that make up the world we have to know it. So it's a very modest argument. It's not an attempt to prove God acts. It's an attempt to say you can, you can conceive of God acting without being in conflict with science. <laughs> so how might God do that? As I understand it, you're, you're saying something like if the most basic events in quantum mechanics are non-cause and they happen kind of in a probability curve, um, mm-hmm. then God might influence how that probability curves? Well, it's close, but not, not quite. The, the probability curve, is, as you call it, is the result of God acting. It's not that God changes the probabilities. The probabilities are the result of God acting. All quantum events are the result of God acting. And that kind of action isn't in violation of the law of physics. In fact, it's the basis of the law of physics. That, I couldn't say that if I was talking about gravity and the planets orbiting like Newton did in the head of ring and angel. Because there you actually are violating the law of physics. So does this theory of God's action in the world make room for huge macroscopic miracles like the uh, reanimation of Jesus' body, which would seem to require squishing all the quantum events up to one end of the probability curve for trillions and trillions of events for a sustained period of time? No, it has nothing to do with that question. It's a good question because it's another confusion. In, in my way of looking at it, there certainly is room for the miraculous. And obviously the resurrection, which is not just bringing Jesus' body back to life, but it's a genuine resurrection, is a miracle. I, obviously it may not have happened. If you believe it didn't happen, I believe it did. But I'm saying in the sense of saying it happened, what I'm saying happened is not some huge macroscopic quantum event. It's a whole different category. What I'm trying to account for is, you know, how do I say as a Christian that God acts in the evolutionary process of nature without making God either into the ID, sneak God into the equations, which is the wrong way to do it, or make God into the intention of constantly breaking the law of nature. And I'm saying, well, in fact, quantum mechanics is the physics that is appropriate to the level of the making and breaking of, you know, hydrogen bonds in genetic um, mutations. And a lot of those mutations result in changes in the course of nature. And that's the way of seeing God acting in the world. The way that it's a simple to see macroscopic events happening is, say, something like reductive decay. I mean, if you have a fiber scanner, it, it makes a click. You and I hear the click. That's a macroscopic event. But it's making a click because way down the ladder, a uranium atom decays. And eventually that issues into a macroscopic state. It's the old Schrodinger's cat kind of argument. So you're saying that God could influence the course of, say, biological evolution by creating the probability curves of the quantum events that underlie uh, evolutionary changes or radioactive decay or whatever. But for miraculous events, God would have to break the laws of physics? Yes. 
so far we've been talking about how if God exists, this is what quantum mechanics tells us about how he might interact with the world. Do you have any reasons to think in the first place that some kind of God exists in the universe? <laughs> well, yes, of course I do. Otherwise I wouldn't believe it. I mean, I don't believe it blindly. I believe it because I have experience and because I've thought about it for a long time. And You can get strong arguments for believing in God. You can get strong arguments for not believing in God. It's, it's not if one argument or one discovery in science will, you know, make or break the entire conversation. Um, so the ones I would use, are the, I'm sure the ones you've, you've heard and thought yourself through many times, and that is, you know, why is there a universe, and why is there a law like, and why do we stand the laws, and, you know, why do we have an experience of conscience and moral order? It, it's those general senses in which you sort of look back at life and you say, what's the best way to account for my life, my experience, my what I've learned about the world? Um, including very much science, and you make a decision. And the decision is a leap, like Kierkegaard would say. It's not, you know, a logical proof, but there is, there is evidence towards it. I can think of the example of, uh, you know, the counter-spies. You're, you and I are friends. We're in Paris during the occupation, and we trust each other. And I see you talking to the Nazis one day, and then you come back and tell me something. Do I believe you, or do I think you're in collusion? But I've got to make a decision because I have to act, you know, one way or the other, and that's going to determine whether I live or die. I have reasons to believe you because I know you quite well, but I also have reasons not to believe you because I've seen some pretty weird things you've done. And in the end, I make a decision. So that would be what I would call an act of faith, and it's been an ordinary experience of the world. Same thing about the world as a whole. Do you sum up everything you know and think and love and feel and have learned and come down saying <clears throat> the best explanation in a broad sense is God? Or do you say the best explanation is no God? And my answer is God. So it sounds like you believe in the Christian God for pretty traditional reasons. Do you think there are good reasons to say anything particularly specific about God? For example, that he listens to prayers, or that um, he is loving, or that he implanted a spirit in each of us, or that um, homosexual sex is bad because he says so, or... Or anything like that? First of all, I'm UCC. I mean, I believe in ordaining gays and gay marriage, so that should answer your homosexual question. And I believe it for, for scriptural reasons. I think the interpretation of scripture is complicated, but I can give you good reasons for believing that. I, I couldn't know anything about God if God didn't reveal God's self. I couldn't know anything about you, Luke, if you didn't talk to me. So ultimately, what we know about each other comes from our self-exposure. I mean, you can surmise things about me by looking at me, but you can't really know what I'm like unless I tell you. And I do believe God exists because I really believe I've experienced God. And I believe that others who are Christians and Jews and Muslims have experienced the same God in different ways. And I, I believe that that's a real experience. But it could be wrong. It's, again, a matter of faith. Okay. Here's a quote from your essay, Bridging Science and Religion, Why It Must Be Done. Okay. Religion, once again, needs the rigors of science to rid it of superstition. For religion inevitably makes truth claims about the world that God so loves claims which must be weighed against the grueling tribunal of evidence. Mm -hmm. Where do you see superstition in modern religion, and how could a rigorous approach to theology help avoid that? You could look anywhere in Christian theology and find places where science is radically challenged. I don't believe in a literal fall. I mean, I think evolution has shown that we emerge gradually from, from earlier hominids and share many characteristics with the great apes, even perhaps with dolphins and elephants. I mean, there's all these questions about you know, to what extent do they have emotions and, and consciousness of self? 
and you know mirror identification, all those issues. So the the, the sharp distinction between humanity and pre-human life, I think, simply is is untenable in light of evolutionary science and molecular biology. So yeah, I don't believe in literal fault. Now that then raises huge questions. Such as, I think I mentioned at the beginning, how do I account for human sin if I don't want to say that you know lions sin when they eat gazelles? Which of course they don't. So where where is the break? So on the one hand, in an evolutionary context, what defines truly human and what accounts for all the characteristics we have, some of which are inherited from pre-human ancestry and some of which are novel. So those are all questions which get raised once there's no historical fault to sort of tag it to, right? What about heaven? I mean, look at Dante's picture of there being a, a cosmology, which is an earth and a towering mountain called purgatory and, and heaven sort of way above that. Obviously that's gone. And for a lot of Christians, the response is to try to stay in that free scientific world, believe the Bible pretty literally, and then be in sort of complete conflict with science, or just ignore science. For others like myself, it's saying you can't ignore science. How do you maintain the tradition in some sense, in the same sense, let it be always reforming? Yeah, and that's very interesting to me. You kind of have to reinterpret what sin is if it's not resting on the idea of the fall or Adam and Eve in the garden, but instead right. on our knowledge of the slow emergence of a, a conscious, thinking human species out of lower species. Do you have any idea what might be going on there? What might we say about sin without the fall? I know I sin. I mean, I'm <laughs> myself all, all the time. And I also do some accidents somewhat virtuous, but I think I really am typical of the kind of mixed view of the human person that Christianity talks about, that, you know, capable of greatness, capable of horrendous evil. And so that's a phenomenon that I see there, whether it's in me or in world politics. And the question is what accounts for that. So I don't want to confuse the, the fact and the theory. One kind of explanation would be like Carl Sagan's, which is not to talk about a fall, and not to talk about sin, but to say, well, you've got this tripartite brain. And it's, it's the fact, tragically, is that humans evolved into what we are, and we inherited this conflict between the reptilian and the mammalian parts of our, our brain, and, and other species in the universe wouldn't have that conflict. Now, that particular explanation may not bear much, much you know, cogency with science now, because Carl, you know, thought of that 15, 20 years ago, but... It gives a it gives a good example of a natural naturalist account of why we're such an odd species. And his belief really was that when we encounter ET in the universe they'd be angelic in the sense that they would be morally, you know, fine. I mean they they'd be beneficent. They wouldn't have our situation of this kind of tragic goodness. You know. And the other image of course is a Hollywood image of like Independence Day, you know, we we came, we saw your planet and your toast. I mean the totally that you're gonna, that nature will evolve totally corrupt, <laughs> totally immoral creatures. And we're pretty good compared to that. Well, that's another natural account, natural account of it. So there are accounts that people can give of why we have this, what you can call tragic sense of existence with this moral ambiguity. As a Christian, I want to say that a lot of that is due to evolution, that when the, the natural tendencies in a predator-free cycle get inherited by creatures which are able to have a sense of self, that, you know, you actually think of yourself and have a sense of time and can, and can foresee consequences, and you recognize you actually can make conscious decisions, that that's pretty much what's involved with a sense of the question of sin and, and virtue. That is, you know, you have, it isn't just, you don't just act on your instincts, 
fight as the lion would. I mean, you really think about what you're doing. And so I can, I can understand how sin arises out of a pre-moral context of acts of violence in which it's not moral for a lion to kill, but it certainly becomes what would be immoral for me if I killed for pleasure and not because I need to prove to survive or something. So it, all those issues that people would talk about in sin or virtue are somehow emerging and maybe even the definition of or, the, or part of the depictionness of what human person is compared to, you know, pre-hominent species many years ago. So the struggle I'm trying to get at is the struggle to understand humanity both in continuity with nature and as distinctive in relation to nature. And not to do that in terms of a literal break, which is traditionally the fall provided as a concept. It seems to me like in the last thousand years, Christianity and Buddhism have had a stronger and more honest dialogue with science and philosophy than any of the other religions. Do you think that Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, Chinese traditional religion, African primal indigenous religions, do you think they have a role to play in the future of scientific theology? You mean science and theology, not scientific theology. Yes, I mean, of course I do. I mean, I certainly hope they do. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for other religions in the sense that I'm some sort of world religion expert. I think I'd be inappropriate. What I want to say is that in the in the experience I've had with, say, Buddhist Christian dialogue around science, I think it's been very, very exciting. And I've learned a lot about Christianity from the way Buddhism critiques Christianity using science. So the whole sense of the self, for example, is just a, a wonderful area of, of conversation I've had with, with uh, Purim Buddhists. Um, I've had some wonderful interactions with Muslim scientists who struggle with um, many of the same questions I do, many different questions when I do, and to see how they mine the fields and, and work back and forth between, say, cosmology or astro- astronomy and and Muslim uh, theology. Uh, and some interactions with, with Jewish theology. In fact, we have it in Muslim Center at the GQ and said a few Center for a long time. We've had some great conversations about big bang cosmology and, and the Kabbalah, say. Yeah, that's great. For me, anyway, I'm very excited to see what continues to come out of the Center for Theology and Natural Sciences, so I have to thank you for starting that whole project. Um, Finally, Bob, what would you like to see in the next 50 years of the development of religion and the natural sciences? Well, that's a really good question. It's probably the hardest one because it's a crystal ball ball question, which is so hard to answer because these things are really changing fast sort of obvious answers are much more conversations um, around the mind-brain problem, uh, neuroscience and cognitive sciences, that whole area. I mean, they've, they've been more actively involved. We've been more actively involved in this conversation, but for whatever reason, I, I think it's an area where the sort of conflict model you began with is much more appropriate because it, it, I think it really is the case that for many neurosciences, cognitive sciences, loss of the mind, the default position is atheism or at least a fundamental sort of disbelief in sort of normal language like sense of self, right? Because they want to avoid dualism like they should. So it's hard to get the it's harder to get a conversation going around neurosciences, whether or not the neuroscientist is a Christian or an atheist, because the philosophical categories are so problematic. And so I conversely I think the work of Terry Deacon and Nancy Murphy and Paul Clayton and dozens of people around these questions of well just roughly speaking the mind brain problem are really important because for for most world religions in varying degrees, the sense of self is a given. Whether it's a given as 
it is in Buddhism that the question of whether forgiven as it is in, in Christianity as in all the day is still a question. It's a fundamental question. And how the, how do you bring the neurosciences into that without undermining the question itself? So I think that's an obvious area. You know, do other primates, gradients, um, do dolphins have a real sense of self or only a partial sense? If we were to discover a strong basis in science for believing that non-human species have these sort of fundamentally important human characteristics, what would that mean about the sense of nowadays? Are these creatures also creating God's image? Uh, if we do discover intelligent life in the universe, will they have moral capacity? Well, those are pretty exciting questions, and I look forward to seeing how the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences can help contribute to the answers. Bob, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Liz, for having Hope to do it again. All right, that was my interview with Robert Russell. I hope you enjoyed it. Check the show notes at commonsenseatheism.com for links and comments related to the interview. Now it's time for... Ask the Atheist, the part of the show where I answer listener questions about atheism. To get your own question played and answered during the show, visit commonsenseatheism.com and click Ask the Atheist at the top of the page. Here's the question I'll answer today. Hi, my name is Eddie, and my question is, what is atheism? Everyone knows that atheists believe that there is no God, but is atheism more than just saying that there is no God? Is it a way of life? Is there more to believing there's no God than just saying that I don't want to go to church? Do atheists just not believe in the Christian God, the monotheistic faith? Do they also reject polytheism and animistic religions, things like that? Just basically, what is atheism, and how can someone who knows nothing about the topic of atheism understand it well? Well, Eddie, that is a wonderful question, and very appropriate for this first episode of Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. So thanks for asking it. The word atheist refers to anyone who doesn't believe in any gods, and that's all it means, nothing more. Atheism is not a worldview, not a religion, not an ethical system, not a set of beliefs about the universe. It refers to only one thing, not believing in gods. Imagine we decided to have a word for people who didn't believe in unicorns. We'd call them a-unicornists. You and I are both a-unicornists. A-unicornism, of course, would have nothing to say about politics, ethics, ways of life, or other beliefs. If you knew that Bob was an a-unicornist, that wouldn't tell you anything else about him. You wouldn't know if he believed in fairies or astrology, if he was liberal or conservative, or anything. All you would know is that Bob doesn't believe in unicorns. Likewise, an atheist is anyone who doesn't believe in gods. An atheist might be a scientist or philosopher who has studied these matters and thinks that he knows that gods do not exist. An atheist might be someone who just didn't grow up with religious parents and they just don't see any point in looking to ancient books for morality or talking to an invisible friend. An atheist might be an angry young boy who was abused by a priest and decided to turn his back on the church. An atheist might be an ex-Muslim or ex-Christian or ex-Hindu who did some studying and realized that there wasn't any better reason to believe in his god or gods 
than there were to believe in the gods of other religions. An atheist might be an isolated native of the Amazon jungle, who has never heard anyone talk about gods. An atheist might be an agnostic, who doesn't think we can know whether or not gods exist, but doesn't actively believe in any particular gods. An atheist could be a genocidal maniac like Stalin, who thought that religion corrupted everything and ought to be destroyed. An atheist might be a Buddhist, because many forms of Buddhism don't include any notion of gods. An atheist might be a cultural Christian, who goes to church for weddings and funerals and does some Christian things so that she can be part of a loving community, even though she doesn't actually believe in a magical sky daddy. In fact, we are all born atheists. Infants lack belief in gods until they are told about gods by someone else. Which god they are told about depends mostly on where they were born. So yes, Eddie, atheists don't believe in any gods. The Christian god, the Muslim god, the Hindu gods, the gods of Greece or Rome, the gods of the Mayans, or any others. And no, Eddie, there is nothing more to atheism than a lack of belief in any gods. That's it. Now because of this, many Christians will say that atheism offers no moral system or life purpose. And technically they're correct. But that's not a fault of atheism. That's just because the word atheism has nothing to do with purpose or morality. It's like saying that agriculture offers nothing in space travel. Well, of course not, but that's not a fault of agriculture. It's just that they're unrelated topics. Or it's like saying that a-unicornism doesn't offer a moral system or life purpose. Well, of course not. Disbelief in unicorns doesn't offer morality or life purpose, but that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with not believing in unicorns, and it doesn't mean that people who don't believe in unicorns don't have morality or purpose. Atheists can have plenty of morality or purpose in many different ways, just like believers do. So, atheism isn't a huge system of beliefs and rituals and social organizations like most religions are. So, an atheist is anyone who doesn't believe in gods. And that's it. So, I hope that helped clear things up for you, Eddie, and for everyone else who is listening. Feel free to ask your own questions by visiting commonsenseatheism.com and clicking the link Ask the Atheist. That's it for this episode of Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Thanks for listening.